It's Friday, March 1st, and this border's apparently big enough for the two of them. We start here. President Biden and former President Trump each tour the southern border. It is top of mind for voters in November. Both men promise they're the one who can get it under control, so what exactly are they each proposing? Aid groups said this was a disaster waiting to happen. Well, now it has. They used a machine gun one of the tanks to open fire at the crowd. How giving out food to Gaza civilians became a mass casualty event. And much of the Texas panhandle is on fire. What happens when volunteer firefighters confront the biggest blaze they've ever seen? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Well, we flipped the calendar page into March, which now means we're just about eight months from Election Day. And in an election year, we so often talk about issues, right? If only everyone could just focus on the issues. Well, if you ask the average voter in the U.S. right now what they see as the most pressing issue in the country, it's immigration. In recent Gallup polling, immigration rose to the top of the list, past the economy, past health for the first time in years. Most of that is because Republicans are so unified in their concerns. Democrats don't care nearly as much, but independents are also increasingly seeing the border as a problem, which is why yesterday both President Biden and former President Trump arrived in Texas for dueling border visits. Let's go there right now. ABC's chief White House correspondent, Mary Bruce, is there in Texas. Mary, what were they each there to accomplish yesterday? First of all, Brad, it was just a remarkable, very stark split-screen moment in this campaign to have both of them, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, touching down in Texas within an hour of each other, 300 miles apart, and both immediately heading straight to the border. Nice weather, beautiful day, but a very dangerous border. We're going to take care of it. Thank you. Last time I was here, I remember they were going with what looks like a boxcar coming across in a tractor trailer. They were here to outline their very different plans and approaches to tackling this issue, both well aware, as you note, that it is top of mind for voters in November. Both Trump and Biden are eager to own this issue coming into the election. Now the United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of a vicious violation to our country. Trump going to Eagle Pass, meeting with law enforcement there, walking along the border fence, looking over into Mexico and blaming Joe Biden for this crisis, noting the surge in border crossings that we've seen during the Biden administration. They're being led into our, our country and uh, it's horrible. Donald Trump promising mass deportations, widespread raids, even considering and not ruling out going back to family separations at the border. Meanwhile, you had the president here in Brownsville also going to the border, standing on the banks of the Rio Grande, also looking over into Mexico, meeting with Border Patrol and law enforcement officials here. And he is urging, urging Republicans in Congress to pass the bipartisan border deal that they are so far blocking under pressure from Donald Trump. The majority of Democrats and Republicans in both houses support this legislation until someone came along and said, don't do that, it'll benefit the incumbent. That's a hell of a way to do business in America for such a serious problem. We need to act. Donald Trump urged Republicans to kill the very reforms that they had been demanding for months so that he could deny President Biden a political win on this key issue. And President Biden really taking a much different strategy, doing something I frankly don't think I've ever heard him do before, which is urging the former president to work with him. You know and I know 
It's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Biden telling Trump that instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, he should join him to get this done and solve the problem together. And yet, Mary, President Biden had, you know, for a long time decried former President Trump's use of executive action. Now we're hearing that Biden just trying to get something done in an election year is looking at potential executive action. I mean, is that getting closer to a reality because of a visit like this? Yeah, look, President Biden is still pushing for this bipartisan border deal, but he's also well aware of the political reality. So he is also considering taking executive action. We know the White House is looking at a range of options and steps that the president could take on his own. We're told no final decisions have been made yet, but possibly on the table could include tough new asylum restrictions, also capping daily crossings, some of the things that are in that bipartisan border deal. Look, the president is well aware that immigration has become a real political liability for his administration and for his campaign, and he is eager to show voters that he's addressing the issue. But wait, but is any of that legal, Mary? Like the executive action, not just that, but also, you know, SB4, which is this controversial Texas bill that became a law in Texas that basically gives state troopers the right to apprehend anyone they think might be undocumented. I mean, just in the last 48 hours, a federal judge put an injunction on that law. Like, are any of the solutions that state or federal lawmakers are trying to come up with going to stand up in court if they're not part of a congressional bill? And Brad, that is why this is in part such a complicated, difficult issue. Look, we know that some of the tough new asylum restrictions that the president is apparently considering echo restrictions that Donald Trump himself put in place back in 2018. Those were at the time decried by Democrats and challenged legally. And that's why the president and the White House continue to stress if you really want to tackle this problem, it has to be done in a bipartisan way and it's got to be done with Congress. It's so interesting to see both of these men be like, I I need a photo op right now. The temperature is so high on the border that I need to be seen doing something, but it's still yet to be seen if anything happens. All right. Uh, Mary Bruce there at the border in Brownsville. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, why did Israeli troops open fire as people were trying to get food? The new outrage in Gaza after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Earlier this week, we told you about something that's been happening in Gaza recently. Because it's already dangerous enough in Rafah, that southern area right by the border with Egypt where everyone's kind of bottled up. But at least if you're there, outside agencies can send in food and medicine as part of these big aid convoys. Well, if you're in the northern part of the Gaza Strip and lots of people have remained there, there is nothing for you. To the point where when aid trucks do manage to make their way into a city in the north, people are so desperate, forget lining up, they are clamoring the moment a truck shows up. 
the people driving these vehicles have said, this is just getting too dangerous. It's too crowded. People are starting to get violent. There's going to be a disaster. Well, yesterday, we got word that the thing everyone feared has happened. The UN now says more than 100 people are dead, hundreds more injured, all because they arrived in a frantic search for food. ABC's foreign correspondent Tom Sufi Burridge is back with us this morning from Tel Aviv in Israel. Tom, first off, what happened? Yeah, we feared this could happen, Brad. I mean, look, this, this happened in the early hours of the morning. A convoy of aid trucks, about 30 trucks, were heading south to north. Uh, they went through a checkpoint, an Israeli checkpoint. Now, this is where things get more complicated and the sequencing events is disputed. But the IDF, the Israelis, basically say that a crowd of people surged towards the trucks. Now, the footage, it's hard to describe, but it, it is the epitome of desperation. It's surveillance video taken from Israeli drones above. And, and there's just dots. These are people and they're swarming. And there's just massive groups of them all going around these trucks. You know, it's it's kind of hard to make out whether or not, in according to that video, people were run down by the trucks. But that's what the Israelis say. They say that tens of people, according to one Israeli official, were killed probably by being run over by the trucks or killed in the crush, the huge number of people and the crowds. Then, later on, and this is where things get really unclear, shots were fired. Hmm. The Israeli narrative changed over time throughout the hours immediately when this story first broke. But what's clear now is they're saying that they say a crowd of people started to approach one of their tanks. The tanks that were there to secure the convoy sees the Gazan being trampled and cautiously tries to disperse the mob with a few warning shots. The Israelis say people got too close to the convoy. The Israelis claimed the crowd was, their quote, threatening. And that's when they used a machine gun, one of the tanks, to open fire at the crowd. No IDF strike was conducted towards the, the aid convoy because our war is against Hamas, not against the people of Gaza. What they're not being clear about is exactly how many people might have died or be injured because of that gunfire. Wow. But an IDF spokesman who I challenged said at least a handful of people were injured and probably died because of the gunfire from the tank. And the reaction of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority governing the West Bank, uh, they're describing this as a massacre. And, and I think that sort of sentiment will be widely shared across the Middle East. And yeah, like you just referenced, though, you actually got a chance to speak to an IDF spokesperson about all this, right? That's right. We spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner and you know, I quizzed him about some of the detail around this. Can you just clarify for us um, how many people were potentially killed by Israeli bullets at that checkpoint? Well, first of all, I, th I think it's important to weigh on the uh, dire situation and the cause of this operation. The bigger points that the IDF is making is that, you know, this is a conflict zone. Hamas is in their eyes terrorists and they're coming up from all kinds of places and troops are on edge. The nature of the warfare in Gaza where terrorists do not wear uniforms and approach our tanks and uh, put explosive devices on them, there is a potential threat around that. So people should not be approaching our forces. Then again, you look at the footage and it's just total mayhem there. Chaos, desperation mm. in an area, as you said, is just not getting enough aid where people are really, really, really hungry. And, and that's what eyewitnesses from the ground are saying. What is happening to us is unjust and unfair. We are people who just want to live and eat. 
Yeah, and that's kind of seems like the the main conflict of narratives that we're going to see over the next twenty four hours, right, Tom? Is is whether this was just pe- sort of peaceful, desperate people that are just like, give me whatever you can, give me, or whether there are armed people in the crowd, whether there are instigators, whether Hamas is anywhere near any of this. Is that kind of the argument that the IDF is using to justify this? Well, we haven't seen any clear evidence that the people in the immediate vicinity were armed. There's nothing out there video-wise. The IDF, I asked about that, and they, they weren't clear. One of your colleagues has estimated that tens of people were killed potentially in the crush. Can you at least estimate how many people in that later incident were killed by Israeli fire? We understand that a handful of people were injured, uh, wounded, or perhaps killed in the warning shots that we fired towards the people that were those people. Can you clarify where those people were armed that moved towards the incident is still under investigation? I can't clarify what I do know. The RDF says they weren't actually escorting the convoy, if you like, and, and they also disputed that any heavy weaponry was potentially used in this incident. But then later, they did come out with this clarification that a tank was there at least one tank and that it was a tank that opened fire right your soldiers in the tank at least they're saying with the machine guns not the huge tank artillery right but tom last time we spoke president biden has said he was hopeful we could get a ceasefire as soon as i think he was saying monday what does this incident mean for negotiations like that well president biden was pretty clear i mean this is bad news for the negotiations it's, it's pretty pretty obvious that right i mean it flames up tensions it brings in mistrust it creates anger President Biden also backtracking on his prediction of a, a deal by the end of this weekend. I mean, he, he says he's still hopeful that a, a deal can be reached. Remember, we've got that unofficial deadline at the beginning of Ramadan. That's mm. in about 10 days time. The thinking is that once Ramadan kicks in, you know, it's a tense time across the Middle East, in particular with a war in Gaza going on. If there is a, not a ceasefire, there is the potential or more, more potential for the conflict to escalate further. Yeah, just a, a terribly tragic moment here that a lot of people say, A, could have been prevented, and B, wasn't helped when Israeli troops opened fire. All right, Tom Sufi Burridge, uh, there in Tel Aviv right now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Far away from the presidential visit at the southern border, the Texas panhandle up by Oklahoma is cattle country, which is why this week, as fires have whipped across the northern part of the state, it's been so unnerving for so many Texans. It's all on fire back there all around us. Because while from a satellite view, it might look like big, empty expanses of grassland, no risk there, from a rancher's point of view, this has become the most devastating event in years. In fact, one of those fires has now become the largest in Texas state history. Let's go to ABC's chief national correspondent, Matt Gutman, who's in Stinnett, Texas right now. Matt, how bad has it gotten there? It's pretty bad uh, on the ground, Brad. What you're seeing here is basically the confluence of three major fires forming, as you said, the biggest fire in Texas history, much larger than Rhode Island, um, about a million acres and change. That's big. And, you know, this is big country, right? That's what this is known. And for the most part, it is pan flat, which makes it very windy, which makes it very prone to fires. And the thing that fuels fires most is wind. And that's something they have a lot of here. So what happened? It's been dry. The wind picked up. We don't know how the fire started, but basically three of them started. And suddenly that wind turned what might have been moderate-sized fires into massive conflagrations. The sky just turned black. I mean, the smoke was so thick. I was driving 65 miles an hour, and I could not outrun the fire. That's how fast it was going. Charred 
vast quantities of the landscape here, um, carving paths 90 miles wide, basically the distance from New York to Philadelphia. By the time we got here, we had just enough time to get our animals, some clothes, our emergency kit, and get out. Destroying a lot of ranch land, but also dozens and dozens of homes. What kind of stuff do you lose here? I mean, it looks like... Everything. Everything. There's been nothing but that trailer that's so far salvageable. It burned all around it. In one town alone, called Fritch, there are 100 houses that have been destroyed, and they're still going through to determine all of the destruction that they've seen so far. You, were, you said you were asleep. What yeah, happened? me and my one-year-old were taking a nap. Just as we arrived here, we met a woman named Chanel Young. And then I got a knock on the door from a police officer, and he said, you need to get out. And he's like, you don't have much time, get out. Her house is perfectly intact. In fact, I think it's one of only a couple of houses in her neighborhood that is intact. And next door, the house is destroyed. We saw him at his house checking everything out. What did he tell you? Um, he just said, like, we were in your back. We pulled a truck through your backyard and uh, we're putting out fires right next to the shop. She told me that her neighbor is a firefighter who made the selfless decision to sacrifice his own house in order to save her home. There's a picture of his house still standing and he's in my backyard saving my stuff. God. Oh, I'm not going to cry. It was a very emotional moment, and she was shocked that there was this selflessness that a firefighter will see that his own home is on fire, but yet direct his crew and his team and his truck to save the house of his neighbor. Just devastating for him, and I told him, like, I'm going to do whatever I can to help you put together your house again because you saved mine, and we owe you our... My children owe you, like, everything we can give him. Lots of stories of heroism, but also tremendous suffering here, uh, including the loss of life. An 83-year-old grandmother uh, also died in one of the homes that burned down, Brad. Well, and about the firefighters and the fire departments here, you're from California, Matt, where you have these vast wildfire teams that are they have infrastructure to do this. Is that the case in that part of Texas? No, a lot of the firefighters here are volunteer firefighters. Many of them have come from a long way off as far as Houston, I'm sure farther than that as well, but we spoke to a team from Houston and something that you don't see here that you would see in, say, California, and that is vast areas where fire retardant was dropped by fleets of aircraft capable of stopping the progress of fires. You just don't see that here because they didn't have the resources on this fire. Um, mm. And it spread so fast and so wide, you wonder what might have been done had they kind of had they had the fleets of aircraft that um, states like California do and those kinds of resources. So what happens next here? Is the weather there expected to make this isn't we often think of Texas as being hot and dry. It's not hot there right now. I mean, does, does the weather there make this easier to contain or could this get worse? I can tell you from personal experience, it's freezing out here, Brad. Right. Uh, it's very cold, at least for us. So in the uh, mid 30s right now and it snowed yesterday, um, there was enough snow that firefighters tell me they believe that that has pretty much put out the fire. There might be a few hot spots here and there, but they're reasonably confident that the worst is over at this point. It does make me think, though, you like you talk about the heroism of volunteer firefighters throughout so much of the country. It does make you wonder as climate change kind of brings us drier, more fire prone areas. 
do some of these departments start getting overwhelmed? We're certainly seeing just huge blazes in Texas right now. Uh, Matt Gutman, thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, fans really relished this. So why are there suddenly not dogs? One last thing is next. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. Everyone loves a deal, but is there such a thing as the deal being too good? Something we've had for 27 years has garnered this much attention, and it's really a tribute to our fans. So for the better part of the last three decades, the Philadelphia Phillies have hosted an event called Dollar Dog Night. These are games early in the year when everyone's cold, it's tough to watch a ball game, so at least you can scarf down some $1 hot dogs. It became so popular they began keeping track of sales on the scoreboard. Well, yesterday, the Phillies said the dog days are over, their promotion's done. And it was not a good experience for our fans who came to the games last year. That's the bottom line. The team said they had a few reasons for this. One is, frankly, the concourses were getting too crowded by long lines. The other was the food fights. When something goes a little sideways, there's a couple hundred that ruin it for everybody. Yeah, there's a point at which hot dogs become so cheap that fans started feeling comfortable throwing them at each other. They were throwing people out like crazy. It progressed, as these things do, to water bottles. At another game, they started throwing them onto the field as they urged the Phils to catch up. This is the latest example of a well-meaning promotion going haywire. Well, they gave away autographed balls tonight. Back in 1995, the Los Angeles Dodgers gave everyone in the stands a free baseball, only to have umpires declare a forfeit when fans started throwing the balls at them. The Chicago White Sox infamously encouraged rock fans to show up in 1979 in what they called Disco Demolition Night. There are now, I'd say, 10,000 people on that field, Bill, without any question. It was to blow up disco records. Well, it ended with literal explosions, fires, and riot police. And perhaps the most easily predictable disaster of all time was when Cleveland fans were invited to 10-cent beer night. Fans were given guidelines they could only buy six beers at a time, and as many times as they wanted. Oh, this is absolute tragedy. So by the end of the night, fans were seen streaking, throwing firecrackers onto the field, and players were defending their dugouts with bats in their hands. The Phillies say they'll still offer hot dog specials this year, but the furthest they'll go is buy one, get one free. We'll see if that cuts the mustard. 
the start here, team was debating the best hot dog condiment. Some people just like that thin line of mustard classic. Others like sauerkraut and relish. I've always just thought the more the better. I think I see hot dogs the way I see tortilla chips, where it's just a vehicle for toppings. Like, just pile them up. Like, that. that's where the value lies. Start Here is produced by Kelly Therese, Jen Newman, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Vika Aronson, Cameron Chertavian, Anthony Ali, Maru Milwaukee, and Madeline Wood. Ariel Chester is our social media producer. Josh Cohan is director of podcast programming. I'm our managing editor, Laura Mayers, our executive producer. Thanks to Lakia Brown, John Newman, Tara Gimble, and Liz Alessi. Special thanks this week to Chris Barry, Yori Benajoud, and Amira Williams. I'm Brad Milkey. See you next week. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.